Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. super excited to have Emily Liu with us today. She's actually going to be doing two podcasts with us. So be sure to listen to her next one that she does as an expert. But today, Emily is going to share with us how she overcame childhood wounds and the anger that she carried into adulthood. And then Emily went on to be a healer to help others overcome their childhood issues. These wounds are the root causes of relationship challenges, and Emily is on a mission to help all of us get over them. Thank you for that, Emily. Emily Liu is also the co-founder of Epic Love Institute, where she and her life partner, Jim Griffith, help couples and singles over 40 build their dream relationships. Emily is the author of two books, How to Permanently Erase Negative Self-Talk So You Can Be Extraordinary, and Climax, Why Great Leaders Need Love Affairs, an Enlightening Leadership Fable. To help clients get unstuck, Emily and Jim use the cutting-edge transformational models called Internal Family Systems, developed by Dr. Richard Schwartz, and Intimacy from the Inside Out, developed by Tony Herbine Blank. Emily and Jim took an unconventional path to life and business partnership. They met the old-fashioned way through a dating app. Their relationship accelerated quickly because they shared the language of the internal family systems model and was able to vulnerably speak from their triggers and fears. In their first four months of dating, they successfully navigated 14 difficult conversations. In the third month of dating, Jim and Emily joined forces to create Epic Love Institute, where they guide couples and singles to find and heal the root causes of their relationship challenges so they can vulnerably speak for their needs and create deeper connection. Prior to becoming an entrepreneur in 2012 and finding her life's calling as a relationship coach and healer, Emily was a pharmaceutical sales rep for Pfizer for 27 years. Emily is a graduate of Cornell University. Emily. That is one heck of a bio. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to speak with you ladies. Yeah, and I know Kara and I both read your book, Climax, which was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us as well. Yeah, and I just want to add that Climax was inspired by a very difficult business relationship I had with my first business partner. And so that just, I I just couldn't believe some of the things that happened between he and I in terms of our conflicts and shutdowns. And and so what I experienced there and also what I experienced post-divorce during dating and some of the stuff the men pulled on me 
all of those experiences informed how I developed the fictional story in that book to teach people like, well, this is why your partner does what he does, or this is why your boss is a jerk. <laughs> that people can understand the root causes and have compassion for those partners, friends, family members, or co-workers that really get under our skin because it's really because of their childhood parts that cause them to behave not in the nicest way. Yeah, you did a great job writing that. It was really well written. Yeah. Agreed. That was a really good read. I like, so for me personally, it's hard for me to read a book that is full of it. It's not necessarily technical data, but it is a lot of, there's a lot of learning in there about IFS and how that works. And for you to put it in the context of a fictional story made it easier to read and absorb for me personally, which I, which I loved. Yeah. And, and which is, which is the feedback I I have gotten from the majority of the people, because we are hardwired for story. We want to know what happened and And so I was taking advantage of that psychology within all of us to try to build this story so people can learn from that. And here you are sharing another story with us today. So that's awesome. Being a good storyteller is so, so great for people. You were telling us the reason why, you know, that you decided to to write that book um, was because of a business relationship you had. Now, when you look back on that business relationship, and I know you talk about some of what happened in your childhood with your family in the book. Do you notice that there were similarities between that business relationship and the conflict you had in your family situation when you were younger? Yeah, um, there was a lot of holding back of the truth with the business partner because in hindsight, now I know it, it was more than likely because he was afraid and he probably held unhealed shame that he didn't want to reveal to me. So instead of being transparent, it just was ghosting, ignoring my pleas for connection. Okay, what are we really doing with this next project? Uh, you know, I executed on this idea and then it would be like crickets. And and so he had also a lot going on in his personal relationship. And so I think that all kind of messed with the clarity that he didn't have in terms of what he wanted to build. I think, I mean, I could be wrong, uh, but my intuition tells me that he was, he, he wanted to impress me in some way through just telling me certain stories so that I have, would have a certain image. And I bought into that. And then when he retreated and wouldn't be clear, and I wanted that connection that lack of connection, it was reminding me of the way that my father wasn't clear and transparent and loving towards me. So even though this person, let's call him um, Robert, even though Robert wasn't my romantic partner, when we meet up with even co-workers or family members who are not vulnerable with us, when we don't know the whole truth, we tend to make up stories. And and when we want them to be a certain way, to reveal certain things, you know, that I think many of us, if we just knew the truth, even if the truth was painful, then we don't have to make up stories to try to connect the puzzle pieces. And because there were so many puzzle pieces missing, I had no choice but to make up a story. And that's what we do as a child, as children, 
is when we don't understand why am I the last one to get picked up at nursery school every day? And and so if you're a, a three-year-old, you're like, I must not be lovable enough for me to deserve to be picked up on time. And in a three-year-old, we don't know how to say that to our parents. Like, why are you picking me up late? Right. And and so at that time, we're not even cognizant of that until we get into our 30s, 40s, 50s. And we're like, why? Why am I annoyed when he doesn't text me back on time? Mm-hmm. So usually whatever we are frustrated with in our present day and why it gets under our skin so much, almost always we can trace it back to some root cause from childhood. And so when I experience people who are not forthcoming or who are self-centered or who have angry energy, un- unnecessary angry energy, it triggers my the little Emily's inside like, whoa, uh, it doesn't make me feel comfortable or safe. And, and now I have the tools to speak for what I'm feeling and how that's affecting me. And so, so it's, it's a, you know, it's very powerful, as you both know, to really get to know yourself and your different parts. And as I shared in the book, sometimes when we're in our wounds, especially when we get out of college and for like two decades, I, in my twenties and thirties, I basically ignore my parents. I only visited them when it was absolutely necessary, which Mm. was probably once or twice a year. Now, do you think that's because of the Yes. The way you were treated as a child and the anger you carried into adulthood. Do you mind sharing that where that came from, Emily? Like where were that kind of wounds, your what you what your childhood wounds were and how they became became like an anger trigger for you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my parents, um, they got married because it was an arranged marriage. Oh. And they got married in Taiwan. Okay. And we came over here when I was nine years old because my father's Taiwanese government job got transferred to the States. So two weeks time, I'm nine years old. My father comes home from work and says, we're moving to America. And none of us know English except my father. I'm the oldest of four kids. And so two weeks later, we're all packed up and we go. And, you know, my we spent three years in Los Angeles and that was fine. It was when we moved to New York that all hell broke loose. I'm in junior high school. We moved in the middle of a school year in junior high. Mm, That's so hard. I mean, that's painful. I mean, who knew my parents didn't know? And junior high was when I noticed more and more they're fighting and there were money issues, of course, because we were living in trying to survive in in Queens, New York, and just not feeling like I belonged in school because I was one of the very few Asian people at school. So I was made fun of. We didn't have the money for me to dress in the right way. So I just felt really alone at school. And I also felt alone at home because my parents were always fighting. They weren't yelling at me, but they were yelling at each other. Mm. And me, as the oldest of four, I felt like I was responsible for my mother's safety. Why, why, where do you think that came from, Emily? Why do you think you felt at a young age that you were responsible for your mom's safety? I think it was just an in, in intuition. I, I had to. Here I am, with, you know, my siblings are in the bedroom hiding from all of the yelling. And here I am. Oh, oh my gosh, my mother is getting beat up on emotionally. I mean, I never witnessed any physical abuse, but the anger and and I felt obliged to protect my mother. So so there's a word uh, called a parentification of a child. So I was parentified. I became the parent to try to protect my mother. So I was anger to protect her, to yell at my father 
to calm him down. So that happened. I mean, it didn't happen every day, but it happened often enough that I basically said to myself, I'm going to do well in school and I'm out of here and never coming back. Right. That was your escape plan. Yes, that was my escape plan. I knew I needed to go away and never come back. And that's what I did. I did well. And then I went off to Cornell. And and then after school, it was like, no, I'm not moving back to New York. I don't want to be anywhere near my parents. And then I ended up marrying like the first person that way too young to get married. I got married at 26. And then, um, I mean, it was fine back then. I never really, I didn't date that much prior to meeting my ex-husband. And he was the nicest guy in the world. He was nine years older than I, I was. Um, we were married for 27 years. And after a while, I realized this is not the right fit because I spiritually grew in a, in a different direction. And then I realized that I needed more of an intellectual and emotional connection with someone to really feel safe. I have a question just to interrupt you. Your parents' marriage was an arranged marriage. Did they try to arrange a marriage for you? Oh, no, no. I, I think I'm very grateful that even though they were fighting with each other, I, I know from working with clients that a lot of times clients have, oh my gosh, my mother used to say this, or my father used to say this. So these downloaded program messages from our childhood, it gets replayed. The one thing I'm very grateful is for is, is that if somebody asked me, well, what messages did your parents give you about relationships or sex or success or anything like that? And I would say nothing. Even though they were yelling at each other, they never directed the anger towards the kids. They never criticized us as individuals. Not that I remember. I don't I don't ever remember being criticized as, as an individual. Wow. You're too whatever. You're you you need to get A's instead of B's on your report card. So even my report card from I did well in high school. But at Cornell, my report card, because I'm with a whole bunch of other very smart people, I was average. And sometimes I got, you know, C's and C pluses. And when they got the report card from school, they never said anything. So they never had an opinion about how I was running my life. I think part of it was because my father was scared of me. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, Emily. How did your father react to you protecting your mom and yelling at him? If he was trying to control her and, and verbally abusing or emotionally abusing her, how did he respond to you, little ch his child? I know, I know. And I don't recall, I mean, he must have directed stuff at me, but I don't recall any heated, charged, negative thing that I have held in my body. I know, I know. Yeah. yeah, I would think that that would have naturally happened. It's kind of fascinating that your father had the discipline to not drag you into that in a way. Yeah. When you dragged yourself into it. Right, right. And, and I think because I had such powerful energy, that's like the protective part of me, right? That anger, I'm protecting my mother, but also protecting myself. And maybe, I mean, at the end of the day, my, my father, you know, he died a couple of years ago. Uh, he, he succumbed to Alzheimer's. And I'm sorry, Emily. Yeah, I have forgiven him, and and um, and and what I know for sure now is that he was physically abused at school, and also by I think I think my grandmother also hit him, and and so so now I know where his anger came from. You know all that because before he died, he he was a writer. He he was fluent in English. He 
he majored at English in college. And I think before the Alzheimer's took a toll, he did uh, he did write a, a memoir with many chapters. And, and then my my son took his memoirs. He says, you know, mom, I want to take grandpa's memoirs and kind of clean it up. And so he kind of cleaned it up. And then and then my son told me, did you know that grandpa was beaten up in school? Oh. And I vaguely kind of suspected. And he's like, yeah, I was reading his his memoirs and it's all in there. Wow. Some of the stories. So so when we understand that the reason why our parents unintentionally hurt us in the way they in the in the ways that they do it's because they have unhealed wounds from childhood that they carry that they project onto their kids i'm amazed that he didn't strike your mother or any yeah. of you kids just because you would think that the i mean he had the anger but he limited it and i'm not saying that emotional abuse is not as significant as physical abuse, but I'm just really surprised that he did not lay a hand on you guys. Yeah, right. I'm just so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for not having, you know, witnessing any of that physical abuse. And and I think part of it is because he's he's also, you know, introverted and shy. And once in a while, you'll see like if somebody's paying attention to him, you'll see like a lively part of him come out to tell one of his stories. He doesn't really... You know, people who are hurt and unhealed, there's very little capacity for empathy for others because they're trying to deal with their own wound and and they want to feel seen. So they're trying to do everything possible to have other people look at me, look at me, am I important? And and so so for for people that lack compassion, empathy, and they and and some people label them narcissists, self-centered, whatever you want to call them, you know, in the internal family systems model, which we'll talk about in the next segment, we don't label anybody with, oh, he's a narcissist or she's a borderline or she's got diagnosis, depression or bipolar. In the internal family systems model, you are not your diagnosis. Oh, you're depressed. You don't have a diagnosis of depression. You, you just have a part that's in an extreme role of depression. Let's see what that is about. So what part do you think your dad was in? Like, was you, what, what, what do you think your dad was bringing to the family that wasn't healed inside of him? His own physical abuse made him, yeah. like, what part? Yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah, yes. So when, when we have all of these negative things happen to us, we hold on to anger for those experiences. So in essence... I just carried in hindsight, after leaving home, I just carried so much angry, angry energy from childhood into my adult life, my 20s and 30s. Every time I thought about my parents and my childhood, I'd be like, oh, ew, I don't want to think about it. Because people would say, I, I remember hearing some of my peers saying, you know, our family, we don't have a lot. We don't have a lot of money or fancy things, but we had a lot of love. And I would just be like, what, what? I, I, I couldn't, I could not understand that concept. I thought you needed money to have, okay, we didn't have money. We, I couldn't wear the right clothes. And, and we argued about money all the time. My parents argued about money all the time because there wasn't enough. I'm like, what? You could have not much money, but you could have love. Wow. So for you, money and love were connected. Yeah. So for you, so I'm going to imagine that was, I'm going to just imagine that you were an overachiever in every aspect of your life, 
trying to make as much money as you possibly can so you could have as much love as you possibly could. Is that is that true? Uh, I, I think I wanted to make as much money as I could to be independent so I can so I never have to depend on somebody because my mother was trapped. Got it. She couldn't leave the marriage. She she didn't. I mean, she held like secretarial jobs and did not not enough to support herself or the family if we were ever split up. So what we witness as a child, if it's something painful, we develop these parts within us that say never again, right? Never again do I ever want to feel trapped by any man. So in my marriage, of course, of course I wanted to work and accumulate my own money. But when it came time, after we got married, my ex and I, he's like, do you want a joint account? I'm like, no way. <laughs> I don't want anybody to look at, okay, if I want to buy a pair of shoes, I don't want anybody to, <laughs> to um, like give me an opinion about that. I will say what I need to say for the household, for the mortgage or whatever, but I don't want to feel controlled in any way. So for me, that was a strategy for me not to feel controlled. Not that my ex would have been controlling at all because he 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 wasn't. Yeah, that didn't matter. It sounds like it didn't matter. That's just the way you perceived it. Yes. Yeah. So here here's another example of how our childhood affects like our current relationships. Now, as you both know, I'm engaged to this wonderful uh, man, uh, Jim. And so what I realized the other day, we've been engaged a, uh, a year now. And, uh, you know, that beautiful surprise engagement thing at Patty's house last last winter. That was- for, for our listeners, um, just so you can understand the context here, uh, this is Patty talking. And I was introduced to Emily when I was separated from my husband as an IFS coach, internal family systems coach. And um, we not only has Emily and Jim saved my marriage through some intense coaching, but they quickly became friends. So we had the good fortune of witnessing their engagement at our home last year. So that was so great. And Jim was a tremendous surprise maker and got us all involved in the engagement ceremony. So it was so fascinating. It was so great to be a part of that, Emily. And I can't believe it's been a year. I know. I can't believe it's been a year either. Okay. So you guys are probably wondering, okay, so when's the wedding going to happen? And and so for me, I have so many different parts up in terms of, so this is a concept of polarization. When we feel stuck and can't make a decision to move forward, it's because you have two armies of parts within you that are fighting with each other. You know how you have voices that fight with each other? Mm-hmm. All right. So I have you know two armies of parts that are fighting there's a part of me that, yes, I would like to have a wedding and to be celebrated. And do I want to elope again? No, because my first wedding, I wanted to elope because I didn't want my father walking me down the aisle. Wow. And I didn't want to be the center of attention. That's a huge statement. Most brides want their father walking them down the aisle. That's a huge statement that you just made. Yeah, I was like, if he walked me down, I'd probably like, you know, slap him in the face and it would be a small wedding. And I just still held so much anger for how he treated my mother. Like, why would I want a man like that walking me down the aisle? Plus the fact that I didn't want, uh, didn't like to be the center of attention. So here's something 
important insights that I ju- just got downloaded just within the last week. There's a part of me that's like, okay, let's just elope and get it over with. And then there's another part that's like, oh, you want to do that again? Okay, are you going to regret that at the end of your life that you were never celebrated? And then, and then there's this, you know, you know, this whole other camp of parts. I don't want to be the center center of attention. And then, you know, a, a minor thing is, oh, okay, oh gosh, we have this big house project that, oh my gosh, this is not the time to be, you know, spending thousands of dollars on a wedding now, whatever. But that's more minor. But the deeper issue is really the part of me that felt unworthy. So all my my core wound is I feel unworthy. And a lot of people's you know, wounds are, I don't feel good enough because of the criticism they got. For me, it was, I feel unworthy. And then when you drill down unworthiness, there's so many different layers of unworthiness. You could say, I feel unworthy of happiness. I feel unworthy of receiving unconditional love. So for this wedding thing, it's about, I feel unworthy of being celebrated. Oh, Emily, where where did that come from in your childhood? It's because I didn't feel celebrated growing up. Sure. When my birthday came around, I had the cake and whatever birthday party, and that was it. But in between that whole year, I never felt important by my parents to be celebrated. I never got the acknowledgement and the validation I needed to feel like I am worthy of celebration. So that little girl within like, whoa, you're not really worthy of being celebrated. It's, it's an uncomfortable feeling for me to be celebrated in that way. So in our next episode, we need to get to the root of that. Yes, yes. Feel unworthy of being celebrated and feel unworthy of, okay, so being the center of attention, which is what a bride is, right? Mm-hmm. So here's a little a little bit of a nuance. You know, I've spoken a lot in front of big audiences and stuff. So when I'm speaking as a speaker, I'm- You're the center of attention. However, here's the story I have about that. I am the center of attention when I speak. Yes, they're all looking at me, but I know it's not about me. It's about the gifts that my creator gave me and the wounds that I gave me, that that my experiences gave me, that I get to tell my story so that I can help to shift them through my story of how to overcome their childhood stuff so they can feel good about themselves. So me being on stage, it's about them. It's not about me. Oh, but your wedding is about you. And is it is it just this, it's this frivolous attention that people will just be giving you? Yes. You know, I wonder if you go back to, you previously said, people talk about, oh, my mother always said this, or my father always said that. And you're like, yeah, my parents never really had any thoughts or vocalized anything about you know, my life. I wonder if, you know, you take the good with the bad for those people said, Oh, my mother always used to be on my case about this. Well, I'm sure there was also the other part where my mother always used to celebrate me in this way or brag about me. You didn't get either thing. Yeah. And you were, I mean, what you were, you were lacking the criticism, which is great, but you were also lacking the other side of that the celebration. Yeah. And then I just had, had this aha, was it this morning or last night? The center for attention thing, yes, it's 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 partly because I feel unworthy of being celebrated. And then the other part was I was so turned off by my father's need for attention uh. because he was so wounded. And the only way he knew how to connect with us was he would come home 
And he would say, come over here and let me tell you a story. And he would go into a story about his childhood. And he never asked about how we were doing as a kid. We had to listen to his story. So with, and that's how I remember it. He's telling about war stories and history. I'm like, oh my gosh, I do not want to hear that. I have no interest in history. He's pulling a book off of his shelf and like, what about me? So because I experienced his, what I experienced as a self-centered part, then there's that part in me that's like, I don't want to be anything like my father. So now I realize, whoa, that experience is informing the part of me that is uncomfortable being the center of attention. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So Emily, like, how did you take this anger part? Because what you've taught me through internal family systems is these parts when we're young, they serve us well. They protect us. Yes. They protect us from emotional wounds when we're young, but then they overdevelop as we develop and they become, you know, they don't serve us well like they used to. And as they overdevelop, like your introduction said, they really put a wedge in, in a lot of relationships, especially the relationship we have with ourselves. Exactly. We form these, the, what Karen and I call the itty bitty shitty committee of a bunch of people yes. talking our head about, you know, how bad we are and how stupid we are and how we are unworthy and we don't, we'll never amount to anything and all these lies that they told us to survive when we were kids. So how for you, how did this anger part show up in your adulthood? How did it interfere with your relationships? What did it do? And when was the aha moment for you when you said, I've got to get control over this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. The anger in my adulthood would really come out when I have built up a whole lot of resentments and I don't didn't know how to speak for them. So with my ex-husband, it didn't come out all that often. And I mean, there was a lot of resentments because I became a caretaker. He had a if you read my book, you'll see he had a heart attack when I was five months pregnant. And it was a 15 year just battle of just he being sick constantly with lots of issues. I mean, he's still alive today. He's a wonderful man, but we're just not the right match. So anger will blow up once in a while. But because I wasn't attached to an outcome anymore in that marriage, because we just weren't the right fit at the end. It's we just become indifferent. So the opposite of love is not hate or anger. The opposite of love is indifference. So if there's still anger and hate in a relationship, that means there's still a possibility that it could be saved because there's emotion around it. And what I'm realizing through my relationship with Jim is that when he, you know, he has the only strategy he learned how to, how to express his frustrations, emotion, whatever emotions he was feeling is that he knows how to express his frustrations through anger because that's what he watched his father express because that was the only emotion that was in his house. And so when he, in, uh, even early on, when I would notice he raising his voice or being really assertive or once in a while, he would get like, you know, angry at the GPS or angry at his phone, never angry at me, but just that anger was so unsafe for me that I would go numb. I wouldn't fight back. Right. But but how did you, how did it show up in your life? How did the anger come out in you? And when did you, when did you discover, like, when was your aha moment when you were like, oh my goodness, this is getting in the way and I need to address it, which I'm imagining led you to internal family systems 
coaching for yourself? No, well, way back then, anger wasn't, because anger wasn't a big issue in my marriage, because I just ignored things instead, because I wasn't so attached. It didn't really come to surface then. I would say the anger, it, it, really my anger turned into numbness because my angry part decided that it worked over time in childhood to use anger to protect my mother. So after all of that, trying to protect my mother and whatever, my system really wasn't interested in getting angry anymore. It would rather shut down. So your part, your part became a quiet, a, a quiet part, a disconnected part. You disconnected from, from the situation. Which is, which is just as damaging to a relationship because Jim doesn't want me to be like, stay numb. Um, and, and so now we've gotten to a point where I gained the courage to notice, ooh, is his voice getting a little, you know, is it getting a little heated? Is he getting, is his energy getting a little too assertive for me? Now I have the awareness to like, hey, honey, um, I'm noticing your energy is going up a little bit. It's unsafe for me. Can you, can you manage that, please? So I'm able to request that it come, come down. Or if he needs to get, get um, angry at technology, I'm like, please don't do it in my presence. Mm-hmm. Or if he's doing it in my presence, like, can you just, can you just not do that? It's fe- I just say I'm feeling unsafe. And, and he knows that that's my number one trigger that has me shutting down. So I don't, I haven't really shut down all that often in, in, in the last six months or so, because I'm much more able to like uh, nip his em- uh, emotional parts in the bud. In terms of finding internal family systems and how I ended, accidentally ended up in this training, that's, that, that was divinely orchestrated. So I got laid off from pharmaceutical sales 10 years ago in 2012. And, and then I was stumbling along trying to find another job and nobody wanted to hire me. And then my money manager said, you have all the skill sets to be an entrepreneur. And I'm just like, what? He's like, I've been watching you for 20 years. I'm like, what? He's like, you're really unique. I'm like, what? You know, I, <laughs> you know, I, I was just like, what is he talking about? Never in my mind was that, was that in my, did I think it was in my wheelhouse? So after I couldn't find a corporate job for five months and um, the last job I wanted, I'm like, you know what, if I don't get this job, this means I'm going to jump into entrepreneurship. And that's what happened. I didn't know what I didn't know about building a business. You know, I was willing to learn and I launched initially as a nutrition uh, nutritionist, because that's what I studied at Cornell. But then I realized I didn't like coaching people on how to eat better because they know how to eat better. knew that there were other things that were keeping them stuck. So lo and behold, to make a long story short, I went to yoga and one of my therapist friends, who's not trained in IFS, but uh, was familiar with it, I needed her advice. There was the guy that I met through a networking group that was spilling his heart to me. He had been in therapy for 20 years and nothing was working. He was still depressed and he had three Ivy League degrees and, and his business wasn't going anywhere. And then I said, I'm trained in neurolinguistics programming, NLP, which is another form of coaching. And like, I know that's not going to be deep enough for him. What am I supposed to do? And she's like, get yourself trained in internal family systems. I'm like, what? <laughs> that was my journey. It was because I ran into this therapist at yoga. Wow. Yeah. And then when I read the book, I'm like, oh, oh my God, this is what David needs. You know, this David, I'm, I'm just uh, using another name. And and so I read the book and the protocols in the in the book, and he we had a great enough friendship where I said, you know what? Do you want to be my guinea pig in this? I mean, I'm not trained yet because the training doesn't start for two months, and I know you're desperate to try to get unstuck, and your business isn't going anywhere. I think I know what I need to do to help you. And he says, whatever you want to do, I trust you. 
And so that's how it all started. I, I had them on the phone and I just like kind of awkwardly followed this protocol to get to know some of the parts of him that were getting stuck. And after two hours, we ended up going into a very vulnerable memory when he was four years old, watching his father with two suitcases in hand, leaving the house because his parents were divorcing. He didn't know what was going on at four years old, right? So I just led him to that inner child part that was wounded and helped him to rescue that part out of the past. And, and after the call, he's like, I have, I've been in 20 years of therapy with different therapists. I have never experienced anything like this. He says, you did more for me in two hours than 20 years of therapy. And I'm just like, ah, <laughs> I was just shocked. Like I had this power and this model. And, and the next day, so I went to yoga right after that session. And I, I knew something different happened. And, and it felt like, I think I just had a spiritual orgasm. <laughs> it was the only way I could describe him like, what is this? And in that moment, I knew I found my life's calling. And, and then after I got trained and, and I asked people in my network, do you feel stuck in any way? So, so I had a lot of practice at it and, and I got really good. I was like, wow, I, my intuition is really good. This model speaks to me. And that's how I ended up training this system and you know, writing two books based on it so that I could help to heal others and give them hope on what they need to do to transform. And clearly it's helped you personally and you and Jim together and in your relationship because, and you're, you know, you're both working together. I don't want to talk too much about the, about your work in IFS now, because I know we're going to do a part two, but, um, but it definitely opened your eyes to what was going on in your life or in your past, right? Yes. Yes. It, it opened my eyes and, and also meeting someone like Jim, you know, it's, it's part of my personal story of how I have been dating for two years after my divorce. And with some of these men, I got so attached, like, oh my gosh, he looks like he's checking off the boxes. Uh, and, and, and so initially when they look like they're checking off the boxes, you want to like attach, right? <gasps> I think this is a life partner. So that happened about four or five times before I met Jim. And of course, when you get attached to an outcome, never works out, right? <laughs> and, and, and they're like, you're too much. And so when Jim finally came along, I'm like, Eh, got to do things differently. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to treat this as an interview. Treat this like an interview and, and just collect data. And, and so with Jim, it really, our relationship accelerated so quickly because turns out he had been in internal family systems therapy for a number of years. So we both had the same language to talk about our vulnerabilities. And, and so that's how our intimacy developed really quickly. And within the first three or four months, we had 14, 14 difficult conversations. <laughs> and, and, and we tracked them all. And, you know, eventually in our online course, we're going to share the content of each one so that people can see how we navigated those conversations. And after 14, we stopped tracking them and, and we still have hard conversations a lot. So each time a little trigger comes up or something wasn't done right, we, we talk about it. Because if we hold on to any resentments, that's, and I think most people know, eventually that's all going to blow up. Yeah. And especially we, since we are business partners, there's no room for any kind of error in terms of communication and um, resentments and conflicts. So we walk our talk 
and it's it's been the most beautiful and hard hard but rewarding process so for people who want to get to that next level of transformation in their relationship the hard work needs to be done to understand the childhood triggers yeah. and you know that patty you know <laughs> yep nothing good in life doesn't come without hard work exactly so emily you is it safe to say you made amends with your dad before he passed and i yes so you can talk a little bit about that. And also, is your mom still alive? Yes, my mom is still alive. She's 80, 89 now. And uh, it was really hard for her for a number of years because she was his caretaker. But, you know, they also had some help, but it was just you know hard to watch him deteriorate like that. I made amends with him um, internally when I was around 40 years old. I'm, I'm almost 60 now. So what happened was, so here's the lesson for everybody. If we don't do the work, it will blow up in some way. And how it blew up was at work, I had a difficult situation with a manager and I witnessed something he did that wasn't kosher and I confronted him about it. So that's where when I notice somebody who's not in integrity, the resentments will build and then all of a sudden my anger will blow up and I basically blew up at my boss and my coworker. I confronted them about something that I noticed. And then eventually I had to go on mental disability because I was having PTSD from after that confrontation, my boss was actually trying to kick me out of the company by mm. being hard on me. And I knew like, no, I'm standing my ground. I did nothing wrong. And so in order for me to be, take a medical leave from Pfizer, I had to go to a psychiatrist. And so I went to a psychiatrist because I was panicking and, and she said, you know what? I'm not going to do the therapy on you. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you to a hypnotist. And I'm like, a hypnotist? What? Are you going to send me to a hypnotist to heal? She said, you know, what happened with your boss? That feeling that you got, what does that remind you of from your childhood? And when she asked that question, it was the first time anybody had ever asked a question like that. I got a, I had a light bulb moment and I said, oh my God. What is going on between my boss and me is reminding me of the dynamic between my father and my mother. Because my father would say a whole bunch of stuff to try to make himself look good in some way. And then my this boss of mine, I noticed that quote unquote phony part that wanted to build some kind of artificial image. And I didn't realize in that moment that I was really triggered by that behavior in him because it was reminding me of what I experienced with my father. And the way he was treating me, even though he wasn't yelling at me, but the way he was kind of going down, just like trying to push me down, was the way that my father was pushing my mother down. Mm, wow. So here's another example of the past is always in the present. So why was I so bothered by this boss when other people are like, eh, whatever, he's okay. Or why was I so bothered? So whenever we are bothered by somebody's behavior or some or whatever it is, we make a U-turn into ourselves. Like, what is that really reminding me of that I'm so passionate about? Like, why is he doing this? Or why isn't he doing this? And, and so that's what their psychiatrist recognized. And then when I went to the hypnotist, I went to her for six sessions. And what was unfortunate was nobody explained to me what we were actually doing and why we were doing it. I'm getting hypnotized. I'm going into old, like infant memories. Great thing about this hypnotist was I actually went into a prenatal memory. Wow. Yeah. 
See, in Asian society, I still remember my grand. So you say, I don't remember much. So here's what I do remember. I remember my grandmother telling my mother to keep eating green vegetables because that's what produces suns. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But in so, your culture, that that is what was always wanted first. I mean, in a lot of cultures. Yes. Yes. A, a, a lot of the Asian and South Asian cultures, men are, sons are uh, more revered than daughters. Italians too. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> At least in my Italian family. <laughs> okay. And, and so we pick up on those messages and and this infant part that I accessed during hypnosis growing in my belly took on the belief that I am not worthy to be born. I'm not good enough because I'm not a I'm not a boy. So my mother somehow pushed that message down into me unconsciously that I am not worthy because I am not a boy. Wow. Wow. So that hypnosis session, those series of sessions shifted something inside of me, not like overnight, but over time, I was able to get out of my depression and, and like be in a better place, but I couldn't pinpoint what it was about. So after I stumbled upon internal family systems, and then when I look back, like, wow, I did reparenting of my, of the fetus part that was in my mother's belly. And I reparented that young part of me to say, I love you and I want you. And so the earlier the memory we could get to even prenatal memory, the, the the more powerful it is to unburden some of some of the stuff we carry. So so that was pretty pretty powerful. Now, do you have siblings, Emily? You you said you said you have three three siblings. It's me, my sister, and then my my two brothers. I remember when my grandfather was dying; he was like ninety five or something. My father came home and said to my brothers, "I'm going to take you guys back to Taiwan to visit with Grandpa." you know, they don't really remember grandpa and he's dying. And I said, what about me and Jennifer? I'm like, well, no, grandpa didn't ask for his granddaughters. He wanted his grand. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So even grandpa didn't want to see his, see the girls. The girls were worthless. No. Yeah. They had no value, no worth. Wow. So all of that stuff we carry with us unconsciously and and, you know, part of that informs my, my unworthiness and who know you know, who knew that was going to show up in wedding planning and <laughs> yeah. And yeah, even my people pleasing part. I mean, both of you are ENFJs like I am in the Myers-Briggs and, and ENFJs by nature. We have huge people pleasing parts. Emily knows a lot about us. <laughs> <laughs> she does. We've both worked with Emily. Yeah. <laughs> And we, I, now I did not know Kara was also an ENFJ. Yeah. 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 I'm surrounded by people like me. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that typical that we seek people that are, tri- we're tri- kind of tribal, right? We want, want to be around people like us. Yes, exactly. Emily, like that's, that, all of that is so fascinating. The culture aspect of it, the, the prenatal memory of the culture aspect of it coming from a different country and, you know, being moved to junior high school in this country like that. We know how hard that is to, when already you're different. We just said, you know, we're tribal as humans and we like to seek people who are like us. When you're a kid and people are making fun of you, you don't get that. You don't understand that. You just think you're the outcast and and you're not good enough or worthy enough. Um, and to now be the healer for others what a 180 degrees you've come. And, um, you know, here you are 
happy and in love and planning a wedding. And it doesn't seem like you allowed this to oppress your happiness, which is what this is all about. Yeah. Well, you know, Jim and I had a discussion about how it's, it's still hard for me to ex to be, be really happy because I wonder when is the next shoe going to drop? Because I remember, all right, I was happy when I met my husband and uh, my ex-husband and okay, we're going to build a life together. And then the shoe drops when he had his heart attack and all of the rest of the, the, the problems that went with that. So I became a caretaker. And then when my first business partner, I thought, I was like, wow, this is the answer to my prayers. And I was so joyful and happy. And then the shoe dropped. And so through those experiences, you know, I'm still working through that. And, and I remember I was just saying to Jim, that moment at your house, Patty, where where I was able to experience that joy of that surprise and the laughter and and just how everything unfolded. I said, that was a moment of pure joy and bliss that I will remember for the rest of my life. Oh, it, it was so special because it was so it was so spontaneous because I didn't have to plan that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have time to think about it. OK, was I the center of attention? Well, ki- kind of. But he also yeah. but he also had Dave and George participate in part of the skit. And and I love that because it involved other people to, you know, be part of that group happiness and laughter. And and so it didn't it didn't feel selfish to me. And so I think that's why it was so enjoyable because it was a community effort. And even in, you know, Patty saying, Dave, we're not supposed to have the phone. <laughs> Nobody included me, Emily. I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, no phones at the dinner table. Darn it. We're going to interact if it kills us. <laughs> and that's why it was so beautiful because you didn't know what was happening. <laughs> I did not. Oh, that was such a great moment. It was so great. Emily, we asked this question often to our guests as kind of wrapping up. If you could go back and talk to that little Emily that was angry at her dad protecting her mom, if you could go back and and tell her something as your functioning self now, what would you tell her? I would say everything is going to turn out okay. You are supposed to have this experience. Because without this experience, you wouldn't become the woman you are today. Mm, That's so great. I love that. And you wouldn't relate to other people who have also had pain from their childhood. So you had to experience this pain. You wouldn't have been ready to become this healer any earlier than you did. You needed this whole life corporate experience, your experience with dad and mom and all of that stuff. So you can have can relate to your clients from that place of place of compassion and empathy because because you know what it's like to be hurt Mm, it's very beautiful and if people can connect connect the dots of their life looking backwards to figure out the true spiritual meaning of why things happen in the way they did it makes it so much better to make sense of your life. I believe that was uh, something that Steve, yeah, that's a famous line from Steve Jobs, uh, 2014 Stanford commencement address. He said, you cannot look, you cannot connect the dots of your life looking forwards. You could all only connect the dot dots of your life looking backwards. That's amazing. And it's so, so true. Yeah. 
And just one more question for our listeners. Are you going to get, are you going to have a wedding? Are you going to elope? Are you going to, are you going to have the focus be on you? Have you decided? Um, well, (laughs) okay. Here's what I said to, to Jim. We were out to dinner last week with this, with this new wonderful friend that we met at salsa class. He's, he's a 27 year old um, startup entrepreneur. He's 27 going on 47, extremely spiritual. I mean, this is the most uh, spiritual 27 year I have ever met, especially in a guy. He's also an ENFJ like we are. (laughs) (laughs) There's another one that's, um, it feels like brotherly love. And he's like giving me a lecture like, and he's had an intense spiritual relationship that he just um he just ended and he says emily you need to zoom out and and look at this the the union of you and jim as that spiritual journey of you know he he started saying a whole bunch of spiritual stuff i'm like oh my god do you want to play my wedding (laughs) 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 so i mean i kiddingly said to jim and this friend like do you guys want to plan my wedding and just tell me when to show up? I don't want to think about it. I mean, you know, I was half serious. I, you know, I don't know what he, what he's going to do with that information. And, and so if I don't have time to think about, if I don't have my perfectionist part in the way, Mm. uh, like critique myself, oh, I should have done this. I mean, let's say if I plan the wedding and then I'm noticing Oh, that didn't go right. I'm going to be criticizing myself and, and I can't enjoy it. Whereas, oh, I just showed up and oh my gosh, I don't have to worry about anything. Okay. If, if something goes wrong, you know what? No one's going to be looking at me to say, what does she do that this just happened? They're going to be like, this is just part of the fun of the surprise. So I don't know how it's going to unfold. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. I like that answer, though. I kind of like the idea of someone else, you know, taking care of it for you. <laughs> yeah, there is a, a small part of me that wants to elope, but then I, I don't want to elope again. And then, and I'm thinking, oh my, on my deathbed, am I going to regret not being able to have the courage to be celebrated? Mm. I'm going to bring that up in our next segment. Okay. Thank you, Emily. This has been great. We really appreciate you sharing your personal story. And we're looking forward to you telling us more about IFS so our listeners can learn more about how incredible it is. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. And I know we'll share this in the next episode as well, but I'm going to share yours and Jim's website, which is epicloveinstitute.com. And your email is emily at epicloveinstitute.com. So um, we we so appreciate you sharing your story. I think many of us can relate to what you said today. So you're providing a survival guide for those that listen today. And we, we really appreciate that, Emily. Thank you for your time and your, your generous vulnerability with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. Happen if you say what you want to say and let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see you be brave. I just want to see you. I just want to see you. I just want to see you.
so my perfectionist part is out in my dining room. Do you want do you want your perfectionist part to go out there with her and have dinner? They can have dinner together. Yep, yep, yep. All right, cool. <laughs> awesome. Kara, Kara, do we need it? Do you want to put anyone out there? Um, sure, I'll put mine out there too. She's All actually right. she's I've stifled her already because I do not like my background, but I know that there's nothing I could do about it right now. So Perfect. And you know what? That's that's what this platform is. We we always say we're genuine, authentic ourselves. So we got to just we got to just do it. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com. And the nice part is if I screw this up, I'm going to just say take two and Des will, Des will knock it all out.